The following is a repeat broadcast of the Global Research News Hour, originally airing October 25th, 2019. What were the motives behind Turkish President Erdogan's Operation Peace Spring in Syria? And did he achieve his goals with the signing of a historic agreement with Russian President Putin? Has the legend of Kurdish Rojava and independence aims been weaponized to advance U.S.-NATO objectives in the region? What are the implications of Canadian Foreign Affairs Minister Christian Freeland's decision to revoke the appointment of an honorary consul of Syria? What role did a former Canadian human rights lawyer and Minister of Justice play in the exceptional evacuation of White Helmet operatives? On this week's Global Research News Hour, following two weeks of extensive violence orchestrated by Turkey on the region bordering it to the south, we turn our attention to Syria and the ongoing campaign of regime change by Western nations, including Canada. In our first half hour, political commentator and Middle East expert Leif Marouf provides some historical context to the Turkish military campaign against the Kurds and the agreement brokered recently to resolve that situation. We next hear from a member of the Syrian diaspora in Canada, Majd Zouda, about the removal of Wasim Ramli from a high-profile Syrian representative post and what it means for Syrian and non-Syrian Canadians. Finally, we air part of an interview by Chris Cook of CFUV's Gorilla Radio with journalist Vanessa Beely about a high-profile Canadian and his championing of the White Helmets. On this week's program, Controlling the Narrative on Syria, Turkish Aggression, Kurdish Independence, and Honoring the White Helmets. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of October 25th, 2019. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegakin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the historical territory of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. The telecommunications industry and their experts have accused many scientists who have researched the effects of cell phone radiation of quote-unquote fear-mongering over the advent of wireless technologies 5G. Since much of our research is publicly funded, we believe it is our ethical responsibility to inform the public about what the peer-reviewed scientific literature tells us about the health risks from wireless radiation. The chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, or FCC, recently announced through a press conference that the commission will soon reaffirm the radio frequency radiation, or RFR, exposure limits that the FCC adopted in the late 1990s. These limits are based upon a behavioral change in rats exposed to microwave radiation and were designed to protect us from short-term heating risks due to RFR exposure. Yet, since the FCC adopted these limits based largely on research from the 1980s, the preponderance of peer-reviewed research, more than 500 studies, have found harmful biologic or health effects from exposure to RFR at intensities too low to cause significant heating. 
That comes from the article, We Have No Reason to Believe 5G is Safe, by Dr. Joel M. Moskowitz, posted October 24th, originally published in Scientific American Blogs. Up till now, the white helmets are only present in ISIS-controlled territory. There is not only evidence for the involvement of the white helmets in staged false chemical and other attacks, but also in harvesting organs of pretended rescued, as the Russian-based Foundation of the Study of Democracy presented. The Trump administration pretense of fighting terrorism. Actually, they support this terror group with 4.5 million U.S. dollars. It comes to no one's surprise. Haven't the U.S. created the Syrian terror scene in the first place? That comes from the article, The White Helmets, a terrorist organization supported by the Trump administration, by Dr. Ludwig Watzel, posted October 24th. Russian military police and Syrian border guards are already arriving to monitor the imperative YPG withdrawal, all the way to a depth of 30 kilometers from the Turkish border. The joint military patrols are tentatively scheduled to start next Tuesday. On the same day this was happening in Sochi, Assad was visiting the front line in Idlib, a de facto war zone that the Syrian army, allied with Russian air power, will eventually clear of jihadi militias, many supported by Turkey until literally yesterday. That graphically illustrates how Damascus, slowly but surely, is recovering sovereign territory after eight and a half years of war. For all the cliffhangers in Sochi, there was not a peep about an absolutely key element. Who's in control of Syria's oil fields, especially after President Trump's now notorious tweet stating, quote, the U.S. has secured the oil, unquote. That comes from the article, Vladimir Putin, Syria's pacifier-in-chief, by Pepe Escobar. Posted October 24th, originally published on Asia Times. U.S. forces in Syria have brought nothing but misery to that country's people, including its Kurdish population. The Pentagon was there neither to promote democracy in Syria nor to defend Kurdish self-determination. Washington has tried to maintain its dominance in the Middle East by inflaming sectarian, national, ethnic, and religious differences. In the long war against Syria, where all the people of Syria have suffered, the many statements for or against the Kurds in Syria take the focus off the real culprit, U.S. imperialism. Therefore, the best response, the only legitimate response from anti-war forces in the U.S., is to re-raise the most basic demands, U.S. out of Syria. That comes from the article, U.S. Anti-War Movement Should Stay Focused on Getting U.S. Out of Syria, by Sarah Flounders, posted October 24th, originally published on Workers' World. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. For the third time in as many years, Turkey executed a major incursion into Syrian territory over the last two weeks. This is in response to a U.S. withdrawal. The official reason for Turkey's incursion is to fight terrorists and provide a safe zone for Syrian refugees within the 30-kilometer stretch along the Turkey-Syrian border, with Kurds being left at the mercy of the Turkish insurgents. An alliance was struck with the Syrian 
Arab Army. As of October 22nd, a deal was brokered between President Recep Tayyip Erdogan and Russian President Vladimir Putin to settle the situation. Turkey's Operation Peace Spring will continue in a limited area between Tel Abyad and Ras Al Ain, while units of the Russian military police and the Syrian army will be deployed along the rest of the Turkish border to the east of the Euphrates. Syria and Russia should facilitate the removal of the Kurdish People's Protection Units, or YPG, and their weapons from to the depths of about 30 kilometers from the Turkish-Syrian border. After this, joint Russian-Turkish patrols will start to the east and the west of the area uh, of Operation Peace Spring. To get some insights into what has transpired over the last two weeks and why, we're joined by Laith Marouf. Laith Marouf serves as senior consultant at the Community Media Advocacy Center uh, and is the coordinator of ICTV, a project to secure a national multi-ethnic news television station in Canada. He's also an outspoken political commentator specializing in Middle East issues. He draws much of his understanding from his own background, having both Palestinian and Syrian ancestry. He's currently in Beirut, the site of major Lebanon protests. Laith, it's a pleasure to have you on the Global Research NewsHour radio program. Thank you very much for inviting me. Now, we've heard the official explanation of Turkey's incursion. What is the real reason in your estimation? Well, uh, Turkey obviously has wanted to have uh, a say in uh, Syria and its future uh, for a long time. Uh, you know, Syria was um, the ground where the Ottoman Empire fell uh, with the Arab Revolution, um, you know, uh, and so uh, there's also a huge rivalry, uh, the issue of uh, many of the provinces that are in South uh, Turkey right now were actually uh, Syrian uh, prior to World War II. They were part of Aleppo. Um, you know, when we're talking about uh, Gaziantep, as it's called right now, which is Ain Taiba, um, the well where um, the Canaanites trace their origins. You know, so this is uh, a long history. Uh, and uh, we have a revival of uh, Turkish uh, nationalism or neo-Ottomism as uh, some with. Um, and uh, with the collapse of uh, imperial order uh, within the, uh, you know, the empire that we know ruled from D.C., um, the different provinces like Turkey that were part of this NATO U.S. empire are, um, you know, being more bold, uh, thinking that uh, they can uh, do whatever they want to. So this is kind of a, a quick background that I, I purposefully went back in history so we don't uh, always get myopic with the uh, closest uh, thing at hand. Um, just, I mean, we're, we're basically looking at the Turkey attempting to expand its territory, having been emboldened, as you, you pointed out. I mean, would it be... Uh, overly simplistic to compare it with the Israel's attempts to expand its territory to the West Bank and Gaza? Well, you know, right now, uh, again, uh, Israel being a province of this empire um, and with the center becoming weaker and weaker, um, you saw it uh, being able as uh, to uh, assert its, its, its pressure on 
uh, the center on DC and uh, gain uh, rights to both uh, Jerusalem and the Golan Heights. And I don't mean gain rights, correct? But I mean, have the empire uh, and, and represented by uh, Trump declare it as such. So, you know, th this would happen uh, when there is a uh, center of the empire that is stronger, that is more in control of its uh, vessels, its provinces, and uh, uh, and colonies. In this situation, um, you know, m many other presidents were under pressure. Let's say from the Zionist lobby in the United States to to get that concession, but that wouldn't have happened in their uh, term. Uh, and then we're not, I'm not not pointing here at Trump being the problem. It's the fact that the empire itself is collapsing and its ability to control its um, sections is deteriorating. Well, just bringing in Trump for a second. Uh, I mean acknowledging that US forces were never invited into Syria in the first place, so their presence there is is illegal. Uh, yet there's been bipartisan opposition to the uh, the withdrawal, as it's called, uh, of, of US forces. Uh, I believe all but 60 uh, in the House of Representatives, who are all Republican, uh, were uh, opposed. So could you maybe, you know, well, what insights do you have into what Trump's was trying to accomplish with that maneuver? So here is a man that comes in uh, to power. Uh, he's an outsider to uh, the establishment, not in terms of him not being a uh, financial elite and, and connected to all these ruling families that uh, we've seen, you know, his pictures with the Clintons and the Bushes and the Kennedys and so forth, those dynasties that run the political establishment in the U.S. But in, in, in terms of him being an outsider to the other parts of the establishment, uh, so uh, he won there and what does he have on his table? He has in front of him a coming defeat uh, that is guaranteed in Syria. Um, we, you know, Obama, before he left, uh, the last thing that Kerry did internationally uh, was sign a peace treaty with Russia to withdraw the American troops. Um, and uh, the response from the military industrial complex was a uh, mutiny. And the American army purposefully bombed the Syrian uh, army positions outside Deir Zor and allowed Al-Qaeda to attempt to breach the city that was at that point under siege for three years. Uh, so you could see, uh, you know, that, you know, maybe by his term right now, the, the military establishment has recognized that American control of the region is going to have to, is going to collapse anyways, and it's time to withdraw. So that doesn't mean that the political establishment realizes uh, that uh, all their fears of uh, the collapse of American empire has already happened. It's not going to, it's not, there's nothing to stop that right now. Um, but you see the the uh, them uh, cannibalizing themselves, uh, the, the establishment in the U.S. right now because of them, you know, seeing the defeat happen, the withdrawal of American troops, and knowing that there's really nothing to do about it. Uh, that was going to come under whatever uh, 
leadership that was in the U.S., except if it, if it wanted to go to a, a full regional war with Iran, uh, which could lead to a world war. These things are not gonna, <clears throat> not anymore on the table for a decaying empire. Now, let's talk about the Kurds for a moment, because they uh, were clearly d uh, betrayed by the uh, the U.S., their U.S. partners. Uh, apparently, it's a, a choice between their NATO ally, Turkey, and their uh, um, partners on the ground, the, the Kurds, with a lot of Syrian civilians and kind of caught in the crossfire. The Kurds have since forged an alliance uh, with the Syrian Arab army. What do you make of Kurdish motivations? Uh, you mean, this is not the first time the Kurds have been betrayed by the U.S., by the way, but how permanent do you see this alliance with Syria? How, how long is it likely to last? Well, look, um, you know, the Kurdish people uh, are one thing, and uh, the uh, militia leaders uh, that uh, constantly uh, feign that they represent them um, is another. So in this situation, uh, you know, when the Syrian army <clears throat> had to, uh, as, as the waves of Wahhabi contrast were um, being launched across to, from the border uh, in Jordan, in uh, the border of, of uh, Lebanon, and the border of um, Turkey, in the beginning of this conflict, and when the uh, Amer Syrian army had to withdraw its troops from the margins and the um, sparsely populated areas to defend the major population centers, the, the backbone, uh, the spine of the country that goes from uh, Aleppo to Damascus. When that happened, the Syrian army opened all its um, military bases, its warehouses of uh, weaponry, and uh, you know asked the Kurdish militias, who were the only ones organized in the region of uh, Hasaka and Deir Zor and Raqqa, um, what we uh, commonly call Al Jazeera or Assyria in, uh, in the Arabic world. Um, that was the intention to get them to defend themselves. Now, there, there was two problems with that. One of them is that uh, the Kurdish population in North Syria is a migrant population. It is a population that mainly arrived in the 40s and 60s uh, at the different uh, campaigns uh, of ethnic cleansing that the Kurd Turkish uh, state, um, you know, uh, uh, camp, you know, performed. Or in those times. And uh, the second part of it is that they were still a minority in the region. And the third issue is that um, many of the Arabs and Assyrians and Armenians that live in the area uh, all remember the Kurdish uh, militias that uh, committed the ethnic cleansing uh, of the Armenian genocide, the Syriac genocide, the Assyrian genocide, and the Arab genocide in the provinces that became Turkey now, uh, north of what is the border with Syria. So the, these, these you know, multiple uh, things uh, guaranteed that the, there's no way uh, a Kurdish minority uh, rule can happen in the area, no matter what empire is behind it. Um, and so 
uh, you know, it was uh, once the Kurdish militias decided to side by the empire after fighting off ISIS, which was another militia that was, um, you know, sent in by the empire, uh, then that was a betrayal to the people on the ground. Uh, the Syrians and, uh, you know, Arabs and Assyrian that were, um, you know, this is their land, this is their indigenous land, and suddenly they have a minority rule of them. So I believe, you know, most of the times, if you look back in the history, in the situation of the Kurdish people, it is there that uh, betrayed their interests for the whim of the uh, empire around them, whether it was in the Armenian genocide uh, that led eventually to the Turks genociding the Tur mm. you know, Kurds uh, after getting rid of the Armenians uh, for them. So, uh, and, and in the situation where the Syrian army gives them the weapons to fight ISIS and they betray the Syrian people by joining the empire. So now it's a magnanimous thing that the Syrian people, the Syrian leadership, the Syrian army, is not actually uh, disarming them um, and or rounding them up and putting them in jail as uh, traitors. Um, so this is this is where uh, you know they had the other choice of dying under the boots of Kurdish uh, Turkish army and uh, Wahhabi Contras crossing, being brought in from Idlib. And they decided that, well, it's better to be actually a, a Syrian citizen and not betray the country that hosted you for so long. Okay. Um, and and just uh, I just also wanted to hope you could bring up uh, another point. Uh, I mean, the, first of all, the Kurds are not you know, a, a monolith. I mean, there, there's uh, different emphases. But in terms of their, their their quest for independence, I mean, where, where does the uh, the legend of Rojava originate? Uh, you know that that because that's not uh, that doesn't go back to antiquity, does it? No, this is something that just was you know uh, minted uh, newly by the CIA. Uh, I mean, this is you can't find a trace for this word Rojava past uh, 2014. So it's uh, <clears throat> it's clearly a uh, intelligence creation, uh, and it it was modeled on uh, and in terms of its propaganda um, to to get the Western population to support it is basically a cut and paste from uh, the Zionist uh, propaganda campaigns that convinced uh, white. Uh, Westerners to support uh, the creation of apartheid Israel and the continuation of its uh, existence. Uh, so, you know, you have um, exotified images of uh, women, um, you know, specifically finding the one in a million Kurdish woman that has green eyes and taking a picture of her because, you know, Kurdish people, you know, uh, uh, having a green eye is, as you know, rare, just like in Arabic populations or or most populations, um, and or again, exotifying the Kurdish woman as a fighter, as if there is no Arab uh, <laughs> and Syrian uh, women in the Syrian army. 
uh, and and uh, you know touching on the things that make a white westerner feel like that kurdish people are closer to us than the dirty arabs uh, which have been you know vilified over and over in the uh, of the west uh, you know popular culture and uh, and news media and so this is this is where um, it's you know this is unbelievable how gullible um, not only the majority of the public in the West but also even the, what we would call progressives um, for them to be carrying a uh, banners for a um, you know uh, a fantasy land uh, Narnia like. Uh, uh, called Rojava, and uh, while Syrians are actually getting their land back from an empire, uh, you have these uh, leftovers, as I would like to call them usually, uh, championing this fantasy land based on uh, innate racism against Arabs and exotification of, uh, of Kurds. Mm. Uh, just quickly, uh, just just a, fi- a final point. I wanted to get your take on this, uh, you know, the uh, the deal that was struck. And, and I know, note that uh, item three of the Memorandum of Understanding says that in this framework, the established status quo in the current Operation Peace Spring area covering Tel Abayad and Ras Ali Ain with a depth of 32 kilometers will be pres- preserved. And it, it seems that that suggests, at least to some people, that uh, Turkey received pretty much what it wanted uh, in their uh, sought-after safe zone in northern Syria. Uh, but w- w- what is your take? What, what does this mean for Turkey and, and for Syria and the region generally? So here, there's you know multiple things to look at. You know, First off, that this is a temporary situation. The other thing is that uh, as the uh, international game of politics has been unfolding, as we've seen uh, with the courting uh, uh, of Russia courting Turkey and the United States courting Turkey, you know, trying to get them on their side, you could see, you know, that uh, obviously things are not working out uh, for uh, the possibility of the West to uh, continue to hold on to Turkey as a province without giving it full equality. You know, in terms of the, you know, out of all the NATO countries, it's the one that's uh, you know treated in the most racist ways. You know, uh, prior to Erdogan, and uh, you know, and this is not uh, to champion Erdogan or anything like this. He's a horrible person. But prior to Erdogan, you know, the Turkish state uh, bent over backwards to become part of the the EU uh, uh, and was rejected. It's almost like the same story of uh, Gorbachev and the, the, you know, collapsing the Soviet Union um, and uh, what what was his name after him? Um, Geltsin uh, basically opened all the economy of, of Russia to the West in hopes of being accepted into the white club. Uh, but in both cases, that didn't work. Uh, racism of you know against Slavic people in the West and/or and against Turkish people in in Europe didn't allow that, you know, happen. And maybe that's a great thing actually for the rest of the world. Um, and so 
Turkey right now is finding itself in a situation where it has to turn its head fully east. It 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 attempted to help the empire with the Arab Spring, um, uh, you know, trying to create a Muslim Brotherhood control of all the Arabic states, uh, and that didn't work. So its its usefulness has ended to the West. And it recognizes that. And that's one thing that will keep it in check. So I'm expecting in the next month or two uh, that Syria would clear out all of Idlib, the Syrian army, uh, with the help of the um, Russian Air Force, will clear out all of Idlib of the Wahhabi Contras. And then it's sit-down time to negotiate on the areas that actually have direct um, Turkish occupation, like those zones uh, that we're speaking, and that's when Turkey is going to, you know, fully turn to the east and hopefully be absorbed into a new alliance. Um, if you look at it, uh, in the last four years, this is the trajectory that's going. Okay, Leif Marufa, really appreciate your insights. Uh, thank you for joining us on the program today. Thank you for having me. We've been speaking with Laith Marouf. Uh, he is a senior consultant at the Community Media Advocacy Center and the coordination of ICTV. He joined us from Beirut. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. In the midst of the Canadian election campaign, an article appeared in Canada's Maclean's magazine, written by Terry Glavin, which criticized the appointment by the Trudeau government of Wasim Ramli to the post of honorary consul to Syria, given the Montreal businessman's track record of harboring pro-Assad sympathies and his public statement describing the White Helmets group of first responders as a terrorist organization. Two days later, Liberal Foreign Affairs Minister Christia Freeland announced she was revoking the appointment, stating, quote, I would like to express my deep regret over the difficult situation this nomination has posed for many Syrians living in Canada, including the many brave white helmets and other refugees who now call our country home and may be feeling fearful and distressed, unquote. The views expressed by Glavin and Freeland are not universally supported by all Syrian Canadians and Syrians living in Canada. The Global Research News Hour got hold of a former guest and a member of the Syrian diaspora to get her impressions of the dismissal and its implications. So we're joined right now from Damascus by Majd Zuda. She is a PhD candidate in science education at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the University of Toronto. She was born in Kuwait, but moved to Damascus in 2005, where she lived until 2012, before moving to Canada. Uh, so, so thank you very much, Maj, for, for joining us. Uh, thanks, Michael, for this opportunity and for opening this issue for uh, further discussion. I really appreciate your effort on bringing different perspective uh, to this issue. Now, uh, they, uh, one month ago, uh, there was the uh, the... Uh, status of uh, Wasim Ramli uh, wa as the mm -hmm. honorary consul to Syria in Montreal was revoked. And of course, 
uh, it was uh, Christian Freeland uh, who uh, justified it by saying that uh, he he was advocating for uh, President Assad and that uh, he's described the white helmets as terrorists and therefore is not an appropriate choice. And I don't know how he could possibly have gotten this role. So for Syrian Canadians mm -hmm. like yourself who are supportive or at least are not harshly critical of Syrian President mm -hmm. Assad, what do you make of uh, the, the foreign minister's justification for revoking uh, Mr. Romley's status? Okay. Uh, first of all, Michael, I'd just like to clarify uh, one thing uh, that I'm definitely very supportive to Syrian government, to President Assad, and to the Syrian Arab army. But of course, it's not like a blind support. Like uh, I'm like any involved and concerned citizen. I'm also critical when necessarily to how the government is performing its duties. As just to clarify, uh, clarify that. Now, regarding the uh, decision of Ms. Freeland uh, to revoke the status of Mr. Wasim Ramli as Syrian Honorary Council in Canada, uh, I was actually very disappointed and very, very outraged. Because as you pointed out, it wasn't about Mr. Ramli's qualifications or lack of qualifications. It was based on Mr. Ramli's public views. And this is scary, actually very scary, because this is Canada, and it's supposed to be a country that values and supports freedoms of belief and free speech and expression. So I believe that Mr. Romney should be fully entitled to his political views. And yet, I think he was punished because he dared to express these views. So what does this tell us about our rights in free speech in Canada? I feel it's a kind of an implicit threat for every Syrian Canadian who supports the Syrian government and President Assad. It's as, as if telling us either you believe in what we believe and so helping us in destructing your country or we will find a way to punish you. And, mm. and for us, like showing our support to the Syrian government, President Assad, through social media, through peaceful protest or holding banner and so on, were, uh, was our way of resistance and protecting our country. And now by doing this, they are trying to deprive us from these rights. And like with the white helmets, I mean, since when we're not allowed to be critical for groups involved in war zone? It's our basic right to question their work, their goals, and their source of funding. And I, I believe there's a strong argument or even evidences about the involvement of white helmet with terrorist groups on Syrian ground. So why should we hide this? I mean, seriously, for me, this is very scary and very outrageous. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, just to, to follow up on that, I mean, is there a, a are there implications uh, for uh, e even non-Syrians uh, given this uh, behavior on the part of the government? I mean, as I said, it's kind of even for non-Syrian, like for people who lives in Canada. Again, what does this mean? If you like, like, it, does it mean that you shouldn't have a political views and you shouldn't express your political views? Because if you do so, you are not allowed to certain position or you're not allowed to uh, to do certain jobs. I mean, again, this is like this is scary because as I think every Canadian Canadian has the right and every human being has a right to uh, to express their political views and show their support peacefully and respectfully for the other. Now, if Mr. Ramli had done anything other than that, I would appreciate that they bring it to the light so we know it. But they didn't say that. They mainly said that he's, uh, he's like he, he was like a uh, decision was made because he's supporting President Assad and because, because he was critical for White Helmet. And so this, again, it's not only for Syrian in Canada, it's for every Canadian citizen there. 
and about their rights to express their views and about their rights for free speech, uh, speech and free expression. So beyond this, this citizens. beyond this uh, chill on free speech that you speak of, are, are there uh, implications uh, of uh, Ms. Freeland's criteria, apparent criteria for the Syrian consul role that will have uh, a practical impact on uh, diaspora Syrians in Canada, you know, who may wish to connect with loved ones and officials in their country or, or otherwise uh, have dealings with their home country? Now, first of all, here, many Syrian Canadians uh, are struggling uh, with handling very important administrative tasks, like issuing birth certificate, renewing passports, managing schools and university certificate, and so on. And the only possibility that we, we have to manage these tasks is either uh, through the Syrian representative in Cuba or by going in person to Syria. So uh, as you can imagine, uh, these consume a lot of time and money, and sometimes it's impossible to do so. So we actually need a, a representative in Canada and particularly in the central area of uh, uh, Ontario and Quebec, where a lot of Syrians reside, to handle these tasks. Hmm. So I personally don't expect the Syrian government to appoint someone who doesn't align with their group and direction to fill that position, right? And neither will do any other government. So by, by saying that if you are a supporter to the Syrian government led, led by President Assad, then you can't be appointed to this position, then this means you're keeping this position vacant and continue to put burden on the shoulders of the Syrian in Canada. And actually, Ms. Freelance didn't provide any other alternative to, to minimize this, this, this burden uh, on us. So uh, again, this makes a lot like very difficult for the Syrian in Canada to, to, to handle this issue. And there is one thing that I think it's very important to emphasize here, which is like uh, uh, when Syrian in the is trying to connect with family members or official in Syria, unless there is something that is illegal about their papers or their situation, then I won't expect any troubles for them, even if they are not supporters to President Assad. I mean, the, the Syrian government haven't used any discrimina discriminatory or sectarian speech or act against Syrian people, unlike the opposition group and the so-called rebels. And through the seven years of war, the Syrian government has been providing services to all Syrians, including those with oppositional uh, views. So I don't think we should be worried from a representative to the Syrian government. On the contrary, if someone told me that the Syrian consul in Canada is, for example, supported for the White Helmet, then I will be scared to death from dealing with this person. Mm. Could you uh, share any uh, thoughts you have about the way the media in Canada has been uh, uh, exploring this, uh, the dismissal of Ramley and the and, and the, uh, the 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 whole context of that dismissal? Yes, yes, of course. Uh, I think it was very biased and very uh, provocative. Uh, first of all, the media showed only one side of the story and portrayed the Syrian in Canada as all opposition to the government and President Assad, which is totally not true. I mean, a lot of Syrian Canada are supportive to the Syrian government and to President Assad, but their voices were rarely heard and usually not through the mainstream media. Like even if, if this came through, I know like one of my friends, she tried to connect with the media to talk about uh, our views, which is different than what is there, but she wasn't allowed to, like they didn't listen to her. So 
the I I personally believe that I think that by tackling this issue just before the election, the uh, the appointment and dismissal of Mr. Rumley was mainly used to serve certain political agenda. It wasn't used to genuinely like for caring for the benefit of Syrian Canada or for looking for the truth of what's happening. It was just to serve certain um, political agenda. Well, could you clarify what what political agenda is being uh, advanced through that action? Um, I felt that it was like just to show, uh, for example, if uh, Ms. Freeland is representative for the Liberal Party at the, uh, in the ministry and like how you are making it working like, how ca- couldn't you see that? There was demonizing for Mr. Rumley's uh, personality. Like, so it, it was just before the election and I believe it was used in a certain way to show that this part of the government or this party is not doing their job properly. This, this, this was my feeling about it. It wasn't mainly about bringing anything like about the truth, about the benefit for the Canadians or for the Syrian Canadian. It was just provocative and trying to pick on on things uh, to for for uh, serving certain political agenda. And also, I I strongly believe that Miss Freeland's response perhaps was in a way in in in. Um, how can I say, to, to also support or facilitate her own political agenda, not because she wanted to bring uh, truth or to bring a benefit for the Syrian uh, government, uh, like Syrian people. Mm. So how do you see perhaps, the, oh, sorry. Perhaps, sorry, perhaps just to clarify, uh, and again, this is my, my, my personal view about it, perhaps just by uh, appealing to some of the refugee, Syrian refugees who came here and who have oppositional views uh, uh, for President Assad or for the Syrian government. So doing that, perhaps appeal to that just before the, the elections. How do you see the anti-Assad factions within Canada influencing the situation? Uh, I strongly I strongly believe that they played a, 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 an important role in this. Like, and this is related to the previous question about the media. This issue, the issue of appointment of Mr. Ramley was first brought to the public attention uh, by, uh, and pursued by Terry Galvin on the McLeans. And you can go through the article and easily see the very obvious efforts to demonize Mr. Ramley, although he's simply a Canadian citizen practicing his main rights. And you can follow that and see how 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 that was like how uh, that was used and how it used perhaps to serve certain political agenda. If you check another article uh, wrote by Terry Galvin, uh, also in McLean, uh, which talk about how an antiquity that was loaned uh, by, from by the Syrian government to Canada and it was actually asked to be returned to Syria and it was returned by Mr. Ramley and it was put in the Syrian National Museum here. So it belongs to, so it's a, it's, it's an antiquity that belongs to the Syrian people, was loaned to Canada and then returned now. And the whole article was trying to show how the Syrian, how the President Assad is just like a, a, a monster and how dare they return this antiquity to Syria and how dare the, the Canadian government give them that back. Although it's like a very, uh, like very, like very official and very normal thing. A country loans something to the other. It's end of the loan. We ask it back, and it's given back to the Syrian government. So just by looking on that, you can see how the political agenda is worked here, and how the anti-Assad movement is also playing on this on these uh, points. Now you're currently in Damascus. Uh, what are the mm-hmm. pos- opinions that you're hearing from Syrians about the the, the, the Syrian government, the Syrian armed Arab 
army and the international community's involvement? Sure. Uh, I mean, a couple of days ago, we were like in a gathering with friends and family, and they were actually describing how relieved they are uh, by the government regaining control over uh, the Syrian land. Uh, they were remembering the terrible time that they have here in Damascus, the terrifying period of time when they had to deal with the mortar bombing from the oppositional group and the death of the beloved one, and how relieved they are and safe they are now. Uh, a lot of people are still concerned about Idlib and the terrorist group in, in Idlib. Uh, they want the government to regain uh, control over, uh, over it. Uh, people still worried about what will happen to those groups. Are they going, some of them, be integrated in the Syrian, with this, within Syrian citizen, is through reconciliation or not? These are some fears that people have, uh, but they wanted that. Um, recently, with the... Um, Turkish uh, invading for the northern Syria. This was like there was an outrage here. People are very angry about it uh, because they are they are definitely uh, not only taking our resources, natural resources, they are taking part of our land. And this is a big thing. Um, a lot of people are just wait. We know that the our army has been doing amazing jobs throughout the, re the the year, and but it still it has to do with Idlib. It has to do with the Turkish invasion. So this is a lot, and we were waiting for the. There are a lot of negotiations; things are unclear. So everybody is just um, waiting to see what's going on there. Well, other um, and uh, other than that, I think the uh, the main thing that still um, worries the Syrian people is the economy. Um, we're happy that the government has been providing a lot of support in many things, and there is a, um, an improvement in services like electricity, internet, and so on, uh, like in the past uh, in the past year. But of course, people still want to see more and still like hope, like hoping for the economy to get better, which is still like um, unclear about how things will, will develop. Maj Zuda, thank you so much for uh, sharing your thoughts with our audience. Many thanks, Michael, again, for this uh, opportunity. Maj Zuda is a member of the Syrian uh, diaspora in Canada. She's a PhD candidate in science education at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the University of Toronto. She joined us from Damascus. We turn now to an interview conducted in August by Chris Cook of CFUV's Guerrilla Radio with a journalist who has taken the lead in researching the background of the White Helmets and its connections with the terrorist factions operating in Syria. Vanessa Beely uncovered the role of high-profile Canadian human rights lawyer Erwin Kotler in helping to rescue a group of White Helmets from the Syrian Arab Army and his role generally in using human rights language in fostering regime changes from Syria to Venezuela. What follows is an excerpt from that interview. When, basically, the Syrian Arab army was in the process of liberating the southern provinces of Syria from um, the terrorist groups that are effectively backed and financed by the same government that are backing and financing the White Helmets, um, the White Helmets sent out the, the, the rescue flare, let's say, to NATO member states, including Canada, who actually orchestrated um, this entire rescue mission. 
but it was Owen Cockler's. We later found out. I think the, the rescue mission was in July 2018, and in October 2018, it was sort of revealed that Owen Cockler was the main broker of the mission with um, Benjamin Netanyahu himself. So Cockler's role in this was was pivotal and crucial. And then, um, basically, Kotler, after this evacuation, and the evacuation included not only the White Helmet operatives, but members of the militant armed groups, including um, ISIS members, as they were being pushed from the south of Damascus down towards the Israeli border at that time, they escaped alongside the White Helmet. Um, and Kotler's role was, was absolutely instrumental. But not only was it instrumental in the evacuation, he then continued with the promotion of this group, nominating them for the Nobel Peace Prize in 2019. Then I started to look at the wider picture of Kotler's influence. And then, as you say, I discovered that, of course, he has systematically defended the Israeli um, genocidal policy against the Palestinian people. Um, he described the occupied territories as disputed territories. Um, he himself apparently has been an unofficial advisor to General Moshe Yalom, who, of course, has issued a number of, of hideous um, elitist racist statements against the Palestinians whose, whose land and territory the Israeli entity is occupying, of course. Um, he has viciously attacked um, heads of human rights commissions at the UN investigating Israeli war crimes. Um, in class led in 2008-2009, in the operation in 2014 that left 2,200 um, dead in Gaza after the Israeli bombing campaign. His entire family is linked um, to the far right uh, in Israel. Um, he himself is a staunch, as I said, a staunch defender of Israel. And as Eve Engler actually interrupted one of his talks fairly recently and, and said to him, when have you ever condemned um, an Israeli crime against the Palestinian people? And, of course, Kotler is unable to answer. Well, and what, go what goes around comes around. He himself was nominated by our former prime minister, Paul Martin, for a, mm -hmm. a Nobel Peace Prize as well. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, um, again, in 2019. But, but then again, also, if we look at Kotler's other connections, um, his uh, twin in America is, of course, Alan Dershowitz. Mm -hmm. And actually, in 2016, um, Dershowitz nominated Kotler again for the Nobel Peace Prize. Now, if we look at this sort of partnership, it, I call it an absolutely toxic partnership between Owen Kotler and Alan Dershowitz. Let's have a quick look at who Dershowitz is. I mean, he was the defense lawyer for Jeffrey Epstein yeah. in 2008 um, when Epstein was accused of um, entrapping and sexually abusing underage children. Now, Dershowitz himself has also been accused by, I believe, one underage child and a woman during that time um, of having non-consensual sex with both of those people. Of course, he's denying that. Um, Dershowitz has effectively um, argued for the constitutional lowering of the age of consent very recently. He's tried to justify state-sanctioned torture, saying that 
non-lethal means or non-lethal torturous methods should be state-sanctioned if it's considered reasonable by the state that somebody should undergo torture. So this is not somebody who is representing the sort of humanitarian branding that Kotler likes to, to, to hide himself behind, while he is effectively, of course, supporting every single one of the U.S. coalition um, regime change humanitarian war interventions, including recently in Venezuela, including in Libya, including, um, as we know, in Syria. He and Dershowitz match up again um, in the Jewish coalition for the support of Kurdistan. Um, again, you know, without going into too much detail, but there they, they, they are in partnership or in comradeship, if you like, with uh, Bernard Henry Levy, who is one of the most notorious um, humanitarian war um, marketeers, better known for his role in Libya, but a, a staunch supporter of uh, Kurdish independence, which, of course, when we see that it's being backed by Israel in the region, it basically tells us that what this um, cause, what this campaign is for, is for the destabilization <clears throat> of countries like, for example, Iraq, Iran, mm -hmm. and Syria, um, to reduce them down to sectarian statelets. And so what we see all the time is while Kotler is hiding behind this humanitarian branding, what he's effectively doing is arguing for the demonization and the criminalization of target nations while defending those that form part of the U.S. coalition of, of hegemony in the region, not only in the Middle Eastern region, but globally. Um, you know, Kotler has, has for a long time been um, a campaigner against, for example, uh, Chinese uh, organ trade. But he's completely, of course, ignored the elephant in the room of organ trafficking, which is Israel. And here, here, in fact, is a very interesting aspect to this. While he condemns China, he again never condemned, or I've never seen him condemn, um, the Israeli practice that is well documented of the theft of organs from Palestinian prisoners, Palestinian children. And that organ theft and organ trafficking operation um, the Israeli one is, is also a global operation. Now, the white helmets, which Kotler has recently, as you say, valorized, whitewashed, um, nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, as he was himself, by Paul Martin, as you mentioned. But the white helmets have been accused by Syrian civilians of both organ trafficking, human trafficking, and particularly child trafficking. Now, of course, Kotler has not addressed this. This, has been, this evidence has actually been presented at a UN panel in New York uh, in December 2018. I took part on that panel. The evidence has been built upon and expanded upon and is now a very, very strong body of evidence against the White Helmets, implicating them, in, particularly in the organ trafficking. And yet this is ignored by Kotler. Well, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Guerrilla Radio. I'm speaking today with Vanessa Bealy. Vanessa is an independent journalist. She has covered, as she explains for years, uh, the uh, the wars against Palestine, Iraq, Syria, Libya, and Yemen, and some of their agents as well. And we're talking specifically here about the uh, the White Helmets. Well, to be fair to Erwin Kotler, uh, he's not alone in his support, of course, of the White Helmets. Our <laughs> foreign minister, Christia Freeland, says, and I'll quote her here, the White Helmets are courageous volunteers who risk their lives 
lives every day to help their fellow Syrians targeted by violence. Well, I mean, so the white helmets can't be all bad then, right, Vanessa? <laughs> well, I mean, what has been extraordinary is the mobilization of um, PR, the, the entire PR industrial complex working for Empire, um, which includes, of course, Hollywood, the White Helmet movie received mm-hmm. an Oscar, was nominated for another in 2017. Um, so it's hardly surprising um, that Freeland and other members of, um, let's say, the U.S. coalition um, alliance of governments that are arrayed against, for example, target nations like Syria, are defending um, this construct, because this construct is responsible, the White Helmets, I mean by that, is responsible for producing the majority of the narrative since 2013, when, when they first appeared really officially inside Syria. Um, they're responsible for the production of the majority of the narratives that, that criminalize and demonize the Syrian government, the Syrian army, and its allies. And of course, that includes the chemical weapon attacks that have invoked um, the aggression, the unlawful aggression, by France, the UK, and the United States twice, once after the Khan Shehun alleged attack in 2017, and then, of course, the most notorious in Zuma in April 2018. Now, since that attack, it has been pretty much proven that the White Helmets um, staged the hospital scenes during that chemical attack. The OPCW report has been exposed as um, certainly fraudulent. It, it lied by omission because it didn't include a crucial engineer's report so clearly, it's working in lockstep um, with its financiers, and, and Canada is actually one of the primary financiers now of the OPCW and supporters of the OPCW. This has all been exposed by um, the working group on Syria and media propaganda, um, led by Professor Piers Robinson. I would direct anybody to go and read the most recent briefing on Zuma, because that exposes this engineer's report that was, for some reason not published by the OPCW, although it completely undermines the narrative that the OPCW has been trying to support, the narratives which allowed um, or led to the unlawful aggression by France, the UK, and the US. But but as I say, what is very interesting is Canada's role now in supporting financially the White Helmets and the OPCW must draw the conclusion that Canada is now, if you like, taking up the baton for the US coalition inside Syria. That was Vanessa Beely, award-winning investigative journalist and associate editor at 21st Century Wire, speaking with Chris Cook of Victoria-based CFUV 101.9 FM. You can hear the entire interview by visiting the site gorilla-radio.com and scrolling down to the August 8th program. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our program every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download our program from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Thanks for listening. Please join us again next week. Today's guest, Vanessa Beely, will be speaking at the University of Winnipeg on December 12th at 7.30 p.m. in room 1L11, as well as in other Canadian centres in early December. Please check out the Facebook page, 
Vanessa Bealey's Canadian Speaking Tour for details.